Hello, welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino and with me is Toby Kent. Hey Matt. Hey everyone. Before we go any further, we'd just like to acknowledge that we're meeting and recording on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to elders past, present, those emerging and should we be fortunate enough, those who may be listening. Now, this is only the second episode of season four. On a few occasions in the last season, perhaps fairly, perhaps not, I would ask you what's on your mind or more particularly what's, what's bothering you. And that led to some, some nice, not outrageous, but a few rants, a few reflections, set us up well for some conversations. What's, uh, what's on the Sortino mind right now? There's plenty there, Toby, plenty there, but... Really? <laughs> really. But we have a guest today. I'm not going to introduce her just yet, but there's a lot of discussion about being grateful and laughter and, and happiness and positivity and, you know, on that. And that's what's annoying you? Yeah, and it just drives me crazy, you know. <laughs> and um, it makes me reflect on not being too negative all the time, especially this is a platform to talk about, you know, the, the problems with the world and... But I'm a smiley, happy person that people tend to come up to me and say, nothing bothers you, Matt. You know, nothing's going on. You know, you're always walking around with a smile. You're like, really? Have you listened to my podcast? Yeah, that's right. I, I never <laughs> – they obviously don't listen, do they, Toby? But sometimes we can in – the, in, in particular spaces that we, that we have with people or that hold with people and certain people, we can – always seem mundane or always seem bothered or always seem happy, you know, and we've got to show – I mean, we're all complex beings or many of us are, some some are less so. <laughs> but um, we're complex beings that, that have a lot going on. But what I think is super important is that people understand, at least with me, that the reason I get so bogged down with issues and so upset about certain things is because I love so much. I don't want to rip everything apart and see everything go to shit <laughs> – because I'm enjoying the parts of my life that that are so wonderful, and um, I, t- you know, everyone knows I'm a teacher by now. I've s- Do your students? Almost everyone. All of That's our right. listeners know. All, of, all the listeners know. And but with the students, we're talking about measures of well-being and livability and a sense of place. And you know, we have objective measures of what a place if if a place is livable. But then there's also subjective ones, and we we've discussed those. And I'm just thinking, you know. So much of the world doesn't have stuff, and we do. So much of the world, even in history, you know, has been in a much worse position than we are today on the whole. And um, I know there's a lot of doom with climate change and AI and nuclear weapons and, you know, politics and, and what's going on. But um, I think it's important to understand that we've got clean water, warm showers, you know, an ability to make electricity from renewables and harness that energy that we've got, you know, listen to entertainment, we can see our friends, we've got great restaurants, people around the world mostly are in harmony and we can see that down the street where you've got 30 different restaurants from 30 different nationalities all working together. You know, I've got Preston Market near my place and um, there's campaigns to save the Preston Market with people from all walks of life together and that's great. So I think it's important to be positive. You know, two, two young kids... Wife at home, enjoying that part of my life, even though they get me sick, you know, every third week. I feel like I've got something new, but it's only building my immunity. So, yeah, just 
just remaining positive and seeing the joy in things. And I think um, we forget that often because there's so much crap going on and we're fed so much rubbish in the news and the... Oh, good. I'm glad to see the negative Matt coming back. I was, I was missing him. <laughs> but in within all of that, I'm trying to be joyful somehow here, Toby. <laughs> but within all of that, we've got to uh, harness the good and the joy. You know, have a have a drink, have a coffee... Go for a walk, sit in the sun when you can, do all of these things that make us feel alive and well and, and happy. And I think um, it's really up to us to do that sometimes. Uh, it's hard to say because there are so many problems and every individual has got a different one. But Roz, Ben Moshi, who we're going to talk to later, I've, I've revealed our guest before our time, she speaks to this. She speaks to the idea of sometimes you've just got to separate yourself from that negativity no matter how bad it could get and she talks about some rough times and how she had to laugh through it had to get through it so yeah yeah and i think if you take a look right at the very framing of moments of clarity so often someone's moment which led them down the path of doing something extraordinary and positive came from a position of having a particular challenge um something really going wrong in their life causing them to stop and reflect and i think you know aaron in our last episode aaron wood he spoke very openly and, and credit to him for the way that he spoke about how he had used a range of different challenges both to amplify and focus his efforts but also how awareness of the the lurking challenges particularly around mental health cause him or, or, or lead him to take quite positive actions in his life again in his case it's very much nowadays about meditation and healthy eating healthy living etc but i like what Roz has done which is kind of elevate not just seeing the positive but actually the very act of laughing um, and laughter perhaps the most obvious manifestation of whatever the opposite of sadness and doom is and she doesn't just talk about it positively as you say but as a real tool so uh, yeah I, I really enjoyed the conversation partly because it was genuinely uh, alongside some deep reflections some really nice laughter with it all yeah for sure and then the use of laughter as a tool almost doesn't have to be because something is funny sometimes our body responds to the way that we what we do with it we can trick our brain and our body to do things uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's a really important part uh, of what Ros was saying, particularly when she spoke about you know using laughter to confront her own very real challenges. And we could talk a lot about Ros and her interview and her life, or boldly we could let her do it. I think we can let her do it. Ros Ben Moshe, the author of The Laughter Effect, How to Build Joy, Resilience and Positivity in Your Life. Her new book, Look It Up, get onto it she's got plenty online she's um, doing the rounds at the moment the media rounds so once you've listened to us go get her book well so thanks so much for joining us today it's my absolute pleasure thank you for having me just to get the audience going can you give us a sense of you know who was the young Roz where did you grow up how did you become the Roz you are today? Wow, okay. So the young Roz grew up, um, father was a general practitioner, mother was a 
um, secretary. I was I was a very loved youngest child, um, a surprise as opposed to a mistake. And uh, you know, I, I had the good fortune of of often accompanying my parents um, almost as an only child to medical conferences around the world. So quite early on, I was exposed to a world bigger than the Baldwin um, upbringing that that I was growing up with. And yeah, I was very involved in a youth movement and I ended up going to Israel with that youth movement when I would just finished school. Um, so a youth leadership for abroad and that really sort of, I suppose, um, gave me a, a heightened sense of, you know, who I was and, um, you know, I think that sort of built on also because I'd been at MLC, so, you know, that, right. that possibility that I could do anything, mm-hmm. um, which honestly is, is just such an invaluable gift. And then I suppose if we we skip forward a few years, um, I sort of uh, fell into the corporate world. I was uh, executive director of the Australia Israel Chamber of Commerce back in the 1990s, then spent a few years living in Israel, but during that time developed chronic fatigue syndrome, came back to Australia, was diagnosed with assorted food allergies and intolerances, and then uh, began writing food as medicine articles and that sort of became a book uh, that I actually wrote a I actually wrote about a draft for two or three cookbooks, largely vegetarian, gluten free, dairy free, sent them off to assorted publishers and they rejected them mm-hmm. um, because, you know, the market, you know, the market interest was just far too small. So I could have become the queen of gluten free back in the early two thousand, but Is it too late? You know what? I think that ship has sailed. Um, You've already got the books ready to go. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, it's it's quite funny. I actually stumbled upon the letters not that long ago. My proposal. Anyway, I I uh, decided that through through my own struggle, you know, with ill health, I decided to go back to study well being. And the course that sort of leapt out at me was postgrad certificate in health promotion at La Trobe University. Um, But in order to be accepted into this course, seeing as I didn't have that experience, um, I had to do some voluntary work and, as luck would have it, I volunteered as a rapporteur at a World Health Promotion Conference and amidst all the serious sessions, one lunchtime session, 30-minute session only, stood out and that was laughter yoga. So I went along and it was my first uh, exposure to this notion of intentional laughter. So laughing for the health of it, laughing for the joy of it, as opposed to something funny happening and we laugh. There was something about it that really resonated and stuck with me. But, you know, I went back to do my serious studies, being the serious type of person that I was, you know, studied and researched a lot about mental health, but really that it was discussion um, and research about stress and anxiety and depression, you know, so the really the flip side of, of mental health, so negative, you know, mental health. And I thought, oh, that laughter thing that I did, that was that was pretty cool. And the health bounce that I got from that, having had, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome for many years, was, was really quite um, impressive and surprising. Even just after one session? Yes. Wow. It was it, it didn't last that long, but certainly afterwards it's like, wow. <laughs> it was like someone had put a fire up me or something. Uh, so I ended up, uh, you know, just growing my understanding about this whole new, 
you know, expression of, of um, mental health laughter and I trained as a laughter yoga facilitator, facilitated programs largely for community health to start off with, to practice and then started to conduct a little bit of research um, with some colleagues at La Trobe University. Uh, one was a laugh out loud pilot um, in aged care and we ended up um, from that training around 130 aged care staff in 35 facilities across Victoria. And the initial pilot, we measured blood pressure, heart rate and subjective wellbeing, so happiness. And we were absolutely delighted that um, blood pressure on the whole dropped and um, there was in increased happiness and lower negative effects, so lower levels of, of depression, anxiety and stress. So that was really all I needed to see to know, you know, how powerful this unusual um, modality is. And that was at that moment just applying the laughter yoga techniques or yes. laughter more broadly? No, that was just the laughter yoga techniques. And I became, I will, a self-confessed um, expert at extolling the virtues of laughter. And then I actually had to practice what I preached when around 11 years ago, almost to the day, um, I received a bowel cancer diagnosis and I very fortunately was given a few options either to do nothing and walk around for whatever life was ahead of me with my fingers crossed or to have a partial bowel resection or to have a full bowel resection so they could actually assess whether any cancer cells had spread through to the lymph. And with two young boys at the age of 12 and 15 and very much wanting to be in their lives, um, I opted for the, the no doubt the no doubt option, which was certainly um, a rather huge decision, because it was it was a it was a full bowel resection, but also with a temporary, um, hopefully ileostomy, which is you know the bag you wear on the outside of your skin, and somehow I, I sort of had this feeling that laughter was going to be integral to this whole bowel cancer thing. I just didn't have a clue. The first hint though, was four days prior to um, the, the surgery, which was a five-plus-hour surgery, I'd actually been booked months prior for a corporate lingerie party, a laughter, lingerie, laughter yoga lingerie party. A corporate one? Yeah. So it was like a business, like a like a lingerie business. Oh, and it was there. Right. They were, and it was not a corporate that had decided that as a great employee event they would have a lingerie laughter party. No. I it had was a, of a, <laughs> a Commonwealth Bank. So, yeah, this will be fine with HR. Don't worry about it. Yeah, not quite. So being the professional that I was, I thought well, it's a bit too late for me to pull out. But I so I went along and I went through the motions of talking about the health benefits of laughter. And then I facilitated, a, you know, a half hour laughter yoga session. So that simulated laughter exercises together with clapping um, and chanting, ho, ho, ha, ha, ha. And that you know, it worked an absolute treat. But more than that, um, I realised it was the first time that I actually needed to run this, you know, laughter yoga for myself more than the people I was, you know, booked to, to facilitate the program. And, you know, some of those lead weights that had descended upon diagnosis really were lifted through the laughter and I felt psychologically so much more, you know, prepared for 
the surgery that was yeah. um, ahead. So that's what I thought I'd do. It's like, okay, cool. Well, not cool, but, you know, I'll laugh. I'll laugh a lot after surgery. You know, I'd heard about, you know, Norman Cousins doing it. I can do it too. Mm-hmm. Well, huh, little did I know. Firstly, there's nothing funny about a cancer diagnosis or, or having any sort of form of, of, of surgery in, in a big way. Um, and secondly, if any of your listeners have had any form of abdominal surgery, whether it's for good reasons and a little baby pops out or the not so great reasons and you cut out a little cancerous tumour, you physically cannot laugh for weeks, let alone, you know, breathing deeply. Forget that. Like it's so... It was like, huh... Just watch bad comedy, like only a little laugh. I avoided, honestly, I was in so much pain. I actually avoided comedy for about five weeks. Mm. I, in all seriousness, I banned one of my friends who I just knew she she was like a big laugher. I said, I'm really sorry, but I can't because it literally feels like your whole insides are just like exploding. It's mm. not very pleasant. Anyway, what happened was um, about eight days after surgery, I was still in hospital and um, it was meant to be my discharge day and the boys, my boys were going to be collecting me the next day to take me back home. But I'd had an absolutely horrendous, quite traumatic evening. I won't go into details. And I woke up. um, Well, I didn't really go back to sleep. um, And it was just before 7 o'clock, you know, the person comes in with a breakfast trolley and it's like, you know, breakfast. And it's like, just go away. Just go away. Leave me alone sort of thing. Thanks. But thanks. (laughs) Um, In the meantime, I'd be like being buzzing, buzzing, buzzing. Please give me morphine. So I was waiting for the morphine and the nurse and I was staring at this um, breakfast tray and in the olden days, um, so this is about, you know, 11 years ago, there was a placemat and a pencil. So there was no iPad. So you could write down, you know, what you wanted for the next meal. I'm not sort of used to being in dark moods, very gratefully, but I knew that had my boys come in and seen me how I was feeling, it, it would have been, a, it would just been a really quite traumatic for them. So I thought I have to do something. It's like, you know, I can't laugh. I don't want to laugh. There's just absolutely nothing funny about anything. But I decided to map out a little margin on the left of this big white placemat and consider all of the things that I'm grateful for about, you know, having had this operation. So, you know, having had, you know, in a world-class hospital, uh, you know, love, friends and family, you know, my body's miraculous capacity to heal and, you know, no time at all I mapped out another line. And it just kept on flowing and flowing, all these things that I was grateful for. So much so, mapped out another line. And by the end, just like, you know, when you, in the olden days, you used to write postcards to your parents, you know, you'd start with, dear mum and dad, in big letters. By the end, it was like, you know, tiny, tiny writing. And I sort of sat back after going through this process and I realised that I was, I was like beaming on the inside. It was like every cell, every tissue, every muscle, every fibre was, you know, smiling. Um, And the nurse came into my room to give me the morphine and she actually boomeranged right out because she just assumed she was in the wrong place. Because before I was like, you know, dark as, you know, the night sky, but all of a sudden um, I'd been able to sort of find the, the light and the stars. And that was my first experience of what I suppose embodying what I've now coined the laughter effect. 
So it's about tapping into this energy of laughter, tapping into this energy of joy um, and gratitude was my first sort of way of, of, you know, entry point to that. And that is the name of your new book, Roz. But before you wrote that, you published a book in 2017 about this journey that, that you've discussed. Do you mind sharing with the listeners the name of the book and a bit of with the synopsis or anything else that you've uh, left out in that story that might be in that book that people would like to... To find out about. Sure. So, thank you. Yes, the first book was Laughing at Cancer, How to Heal with Love, Laughter and Mindfulness. And I really, when I wrote, the, the book actually stemmed from journals that I wrote at the time. It's like you get like a huge diagnosis. It's like, what the hell do you do with this? So, for me, the obvious thing was to, to you know, get pen and paper and start writing to help make sense. And, we, you know, we all know about, you know, the therapeutic benefits of journaling. But very early on into my journaling experience, I realised that as much as I was writing it for myself, I was actually writing it for a future envisioned audience. So at the end of each of my entries, I'd actually have reflection or, you know, questions that I'd sort of be posing to this, you know, future audience. And also experimenting with assorted healing techniques that I found really valuable. One thing, and honestly, an absolute superpower of a thing when you're going through a a, a challenging time was reframing and reframing with positivity or reframing sort of with a laughter mindset. So, you know, it's... it's very easy to sort of get lost in in all of those F words, you know, when you're going through a really tricky time and I mean fear and frustration. And the more you sort of, you know, focus on those states, the more you become embroiled in those. But you can, through journaling, um, you know, actually decide to, okay, let's, how about I take this cancer diagnosis and I, like I did with the placement, I, I, I take this particular day that I'm going through this really shitty day and I decide to journal through the lens of love or journal through the lens of awe. How would that change how I sort of, you know, feel about what I'm, you know, going through? And I was really struck at how much power I had over my mindset and how much my mindset impacted on my overall well-being. You know, when I started, you know, thinking about, you know, the things I was grateful for or embedding uh, smiling to some mindfulness practices, uh, you know, how that sort of changed my physiology and it really helped me focus on, you know, the wellness rather than the illness and one of the first things I did uh, that, you know, that I do write about in Laughing at Cancer was I actually challenge the language around cancer. I think of all of the words in the English language, there are not too many that actually um, inspire such negativity as cancer. It, it filled me with dread. And, you know, one of the common nicknames for cancer is the big C, right? It's all-encompassing. Well, for me... And I did have my fingers crossed early on into my journey was I wanted to refer to it as the little c. I had bowel cancer. There was a polyp, you know, with some cancerous cells, you know, in my rectum. The whole of me did not have cancer. This particular part of my body did. So focusing on the, you know, my well-being in the rest of my body empowered, um, you know, much more of a healing um, mindset. So, you know, I let the doctors take charge of of my illness, 
But very early on I took charge of my wellness because no one else could in the way that I could. That's great. And the idea of reframing through language mm. as well. Uh, and have you been able to use that practice of reframing in, in other ways? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting. It's something that I've found that, you know, when I do some, you know, coaching, that's one thing that's it's really, really powerful because, you know, every everybody goes through challenges and, and, and trauma and it can sort of get stuck a bit. But what reframing does is that it actually, it sort of lets a little bit of light in. Um, you know, especially if you reframe with levity or, you know, even future reframe, you know, thinking about things that, you know, you might be able to find grateful for in the future or, you know, funny about a particular situation in the in the future. It actually helps shift some of that trauma. It helps your brain recall whatever it is that you're going through in a different light. And so it, it actually is really powerful in terms of, you know, psychological resilience. Yeah, I've heard about um, the idea of sometimes if people aren't well or are in a state of depression and they can't feel like I'm ever going to get better, uh, writing about what might it look like if you were better can actually help to make that possible and not seem like an impossibility anymore, that there's this opening in the mind of I know how I might feel better one day and it actually starts to increase and, you know, start the healing process. Well, that's right because as, as smart as we think we are, our brain actually can't tell the difference between imagined and real. So if you're imagining a future scenario in which you're jogging around the park, even if you're stuck in a wheelchair or something at the moment, you know, with an injury, um, your your brain's actually, it's being primed for that sort of, you know, jog around the park and that's where your brain is. It's like it's free, it's running. So it's very powerful. It's fascinating. And we were talking as we were getting set up and this conversation was about some of the challenges in the world, very much at a global level and, and conflicts. I'm just thinking that in the same way that you took a look at the study of healthcare and, and well-being and said, but it's all focused on the negative and I want to think about the positive. And it does make one wonder when you talk about the way that we're able to reframe our minds in a positive way, but what must be then the effect on people who are living in challenging situations and what that must cognitively do both at the individual level but also at a whole societal level. If you are faced with trauma and challenge every single day, have you ever, like, kind of either looked at that or reflected on it? I mean, again, as as you're able to, both for yourself and for your listeners and readers, to equip them to be positively minded. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be framed or living in a context that is completely the inverse? Mm. It's a great discussion point and I think we can cast our minds back, you know, a couple of years to, to COVID and that is that is an example where, you know, we were all essentially in the, in the same boat. I mean, some people might have been on luxury cruise liners, some people might have been in a rowing boat, but we were all in a boat, right? The the thing about positivity, it's, it's interesting. It's actually got quite a bad rap. It's like if you sort of start to talk about, you know, you know, it might be helpful to sort of, you know, integrate some, you know, strategies to enhance a positive mindset. It's like, no, and, you know, the, you know, the resistance like peaks because I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about what positivity is. Positivity is an actual, it's an action word. It's a doing word. It's like you don't think positive. It's about doing positive and being and being positive. But people need strategies. 
So reframing is one example, but there are many things in which people can do to empower a positive mindset, but it takes action. And the challenge with that is, firstly, people need to recognise that. And secondly, it, it takes effort. You know, whatever we practise, we get good at. So if we, if we sort of are in the, in the, the habit of, you know, practising the not-so-good habits or, you know, the reactive, you know, being more reactive or being negative, being cynical, being a naysayer, you get really good at it, right? But it takes, it takes a little bit more intention to say, you know what, that that behaviour is not necessarily serving me so well. Maybe I can allow myself to, to view this differently, to, you know, to intentionally start my day, for example, with a sm- putting a smile on my face, even if it's the last thing I feel like doing. Because in doing so, you're actually creating this shift in your physiology. So, putting a heartfelt smile on your face, um, it actually stimulates those well-being hormones. You know, it gives you a dose of well-being. So that's dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin and endorphins. But more than that, it's the ripple effect that then you send out into the world. If you start your day with a smile on your face, that is more likely what you are going to share with whoever, you know, you, you see next. And then that is the energy that they will take with them as opposed to waking up, not feeling great and staying with that sort of feeling and then the next person you see it's like, you know, and then that sort of ripples out. I guess it doesn't just ripple out but also is reflected back. Correct. And thus becomes kind of self-reinforcing as well. Yes. Yeah. And, it's, and, it's, and it's the more we practice something, the better, you know, the better we get at it. It's like, you know, neuroplasticity, this notion of, you know, changing our brain. It's, it's the same as, you know, if you go to a gym, and, you know, you don't just sort of do one workout and all of a sudden you have, you know, this fabulous six-pack. Uh, you know, it takes, it takes repetition and it takes practice. And it's the same thing for the stuff that we would like to embody on the inside. So does that mean that when I'm talking to my wife and she's telling me all the, all the problems of the day... <laughs> she often cracks it at me, gets very upset when I provide solutions or to say to think positively. So what I'm trying to get at is how do you go about bringing positivity to people that are in that negative moment in a, I guess, caring manner? Brilliant, I, brilliant, brilliant question and it's something that, um, you know, I think we, we all sort of, you know, come up with, um, you know, that, um, you know, person, even if it's ourselves, <laughs> you know. Rather than sort of like continuing in that sort of, uh, you know, spiral of negativity, okay, you actually need circuit breakers. So a circuit breaker, for example, with your wife is like, you know, firstly acknowledging, right, you know, acknowledge it's like, I, I, you know, I really hear that, you know, you've been, you know, it's been a, a, you know, a challenging day, I really hear, but is there anything about the particular situation that you can be grateful for? So you're actually that circuit breaker and just then your brain starts to think, oh, is there something I can be grateful for? And if that person struggles with the immediacy of something grateful for, just like we were saying, you know, before, future envision something. It's like, well, what could you be grateful for about this in the future, you know, just or don't you think that this is something maybe we might be able to even laugh about? in the future. So rather than sort of feeding that cycle of negativity, you're actually introducing this circuit breaker. Um, and, and as I say, gratitude is, is a wonderful way in which you can do that. Sometimes even, you know, words, 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 you know, they can, you know, just sort of end up being a bit 
um, I suppose, spicy. Um, and sometimes it's just getting back to laughing, getting out of the head and getting into the heart. It's like, you know what, can we just talk about this later? Can we just pop on Seinfeld? And, you know, that creates a, a shift. Um, so it's it's sort of being mindful about what you think might work with whoever it is that, you know, you're having, you know, a more challenging interaction with. But as I say, the circuit breakers, these micro moments, just little things that, you know, that actually just change the energy. On that note, there's lots of people, though, that almost find it offensive that you'd not wallow in that sorrow with them, yeah. I'm finding, in... And I see it a lot. I mean, teaching's quite a hard job at the moment mm. and not necessarily where I am now but, you know, um, across my, my time, there have been a lot of people that have wanted to complain and that almost refuse to get out of that mindset no matter what we try, you know, a fun activity for the day. We're not going to plan today. Um, we're going to actually bring in, you know, a fun, a fun activity or um, let's change it up, let's take that stress off you. But then there's always that extra layer that people like to bring with them. And I see it in society so often. And as you say, we've got so much to be grateful for in a country like Australia and a city like Melbourne on the whole. So is there a an in with a person beginning the strategies and asking them to be grateful? Is there an in that we can discuss sort of the the history or the science behind why we might do this and how it has worked in the past and how I'm not belittling your hurt or your negativity but the only way forward for you, really, for, for us, is, is to change our mindset. That's a, that's a big question, isn't it, um, and, and observation. Uh, you know, there, there definitely are people that love to be stuck in their negative comfort zone. It's, it's all they've known. Um, so, you know, there is definitely a comfort to that. It, it takes – I think it takes courage to act differently, to uh, – you know that it's it's a change in identity. So, firstly, I think it's really important to acknowledge that we need to experience all emotions. I'm certainly not one for saying, you know, we just need to sort of, you know, feel happy and joy and everything, you know, 24-7. You know, there is a room for dealing with, um, you know, challenging challenging things. Um, I suppose, again, you know, if you're talking about school kids or you're talking about adults, there, there are many things that, that you can do. I mean... It can even just sort of be just going for a mindful walk and just, as I say, just getting getting out of the head and just getting into the body. Sometimes that can be the best thing. It doesn't necessarily look like one thing is addressing the other, but just sometimes just there's not that much that you can do, you know, and you might just sort of get them to feel, you know, how it is when, they're, when their feet hit the pavement or when their arms are swinging or whether they feel a shift in their mood or whether being in nature helps, you know, uplift them or, uh, you know, whether they, you know, happen to have a, a smiling interaction with someone who passes them by. I know that might not, you know, directly answer, you know, your question, but I just think sometimes if someone is so stuck in their mindset Sometimes you just actually need to take a step right out of it sort of to, you know, as an entry point sort of back in to sort of help sort of shift some of that. So it sounds like laughter might be the solution or a significant part of the solution, but you've got to have somebody has to have the space, the mental Mm. space to allow the laughter in. 
Yeah, it's 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 sort of even more than laughter. It's it's about you know the levity as well because it's not like we want you know every interaction to sort of end in laughter. Um, although having said that, something really really interesting, um, which this is actually something that may somehow feed into what you were saying. There is this notion of the punctuation effect of laughter. So it essentially, you know, if I was to sort of ask you where you think most laughter comes from if people are, you know, chatting, what, what do you reckon? Do you reckon it'd be from jokes or, um, you know, how, how do you reckon most laughs happen? I would imagine there are small mistakes and mishaps that happen in the course of conversation and life. That's, but that could just be because I make lots of mistakes and <laughs> laugh about it. Mm-hmm. My answer would be trying to agree or, or show affirmation to the person. Okay. So there's this idea. So 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 there's been research done by um, a late professor called um, Robert Provine and he actually came up with this notion, as I say, of this conversational effect of laughter. And 80 to 90% of laughter is not generated because of jokes. It's actually just generated because of really basic things that have been said. It's like, you know, for example, <laughs> it's been so nice chatting to you guys. <laughs> you know, I can't wait to, you know, to, to hear when this is out. <laughs> You're not the first person to have laughed when they've said that. <laughs> so, so, the converse, so laughter is very therapeutic, right? And I haven't even got to, you know, talk about some of the, you know, therapeutic, you know, impacts of laughter. But most laughter actually happens because of just just genuine just conversation either you know not in the middle of a sentence but at the beginning or the end of a sentence so if you can actually start to encourage some better conversations with people you will have a lot of incidental laughter now it might not be as intense as that sort of ha 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 you know someone's just you know side splitting laughter but it still it lubricates the conversation in a, in a very positive way yeah and obviously the more you know, the, the, you know, the better the conversations, the more the laughter. I, I love that, and I spoke to you a little bit about why I started the podcast, mm. and one of the reasons was because I found that conversation or discussions were so difficult, and people were talking past each other and not connecting. And I think that that actually comes through social media and the fact that we're not in direct, real time, eye to eye conversation, whether. The lubrication happens with that laughter and reading body language. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm hitting a trigger here and hitting a nerve. I'll, I'll pull back. And we don't see that on social media or in discourse that's that's from a distance or through news or through sharing of articles. That We're not doing that when we're doing it through conversation. So, I mean, we're not getting the, the feedback Absolutely. that we get through conversation. That's probably where we're going down as a society a little bit in terms of our... Uh, well, the polarity that's starting to be created. And it's, yeah, absolutely. And it's something that we, we need. It's, you know, it's a fundamental to human functioning, you know, social connection. And, you know, it's, it's LOL and ROFL are very sort of poor cousins to, you know, real laughing out loud and rolling on the floor laughing. And, yeah, it was, it was interesting, um, you know, talking about visual cues, you know, thinking back to, you know, those, those heady pandemic days, you know, when we were walking around, you know, with face masks and, you know, how just not being able to see people's facial expressions sort of, it unconsciously actually um, triggers sort of, you know, 
anxiety and those stress hormones because we need to see people's faces to get that visual, you know, that that facial feedback. And part of that is it actually feeds into our physiology. We have these really clever brain cells called mirror neurons. So if I'm smiling, for example, or if I'm laughing, um, my mirror neurons are firing and wiring. And then if I'm smiling and, or laughing, you know, with you, then you, you know, your mirror neurons start firing and wiring. All of a sudden we have this fabulous exchange which sort of helps to explain, you know, the contagiousness of, of you know, smiling and laughter. But it also helps explain the contagiousness of the frowning and the, you know, the, 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 the not so great stuff. So there is so much, um, you know, that comes back to how... The, you know, the, the energy that, you know, that we sort of first, you know, embody within ourselves but, you know, what we sort of ripple out into the broader world. Although, and this uh, maybe talks to how sophisticated the brain is uh, in terms of those mirror neurons mm. or simply how unsophisticated my brain is because what I found was even just going into a shop and having quite a short interaction while wearing a face mask, particularly in the early days when it wasn't mandatory or so well adopted, quite often because of the eye contact that I had, I couldn't remember afterwards whether a person was wearing a mask or not. Yes. So there's obviously we can take we take our cues from the whole part of the body and yes. so on as well. And also, you know, this. I mean, basically it came about this whole new expression called smiles, which is smiling eyes. So, you know, your smile can rise above, you know, the face mask and, you know, there's this notion of a Duchenne smile, which is, you know, that really authentic smile and that's associated with, you know, positive well-being. So if you if you sort of maintain, you know, got that sort of smiling eyes happening, it actually didn't really matter so much that your people couldn't see your mouth. They could read that. They could read that. Can I? This is not changing tack in, entirely, but I am intrigued as to whether you have found yourself suffering from what I know a lot of comedians don't like. The sad clown paradox. Oh, wow. I don't know. What's that? The sad clown paradox is essentially the um, idea that so many comedians have struggle with their mental health. No, um, although we could explore that as well. <laughs> the one that I know a few comedians have said to me they hate is people go, oh, you're a comedian. Go on then, tell us a joke. Say something funny. Do you get that? And people are like, oh, go on, Ross, tell us something funny. No, that's the brilliant thing because I'm not, I'm not a comedian. I'm, I'm a gelatologist. I, I, you know, I research. That will stop them laughing. I, I research, I research, you know, um, and sort of play in this field of, of humour and laughter. So I actually tend to rely on intentional laughter. So it's, it's non-humour based. So it could just be as simple, you know, as, you know, getting people to unzip their mouth with laughter, you know, pretending that their mouth is a zip and going <laughs> and zipping it up and down, getting the laughter happening. Nothing funny is happening, right? But the laughter is still elicited and the brain can't, you know, differentiate between authentic or spontaneous, um, you know, spontaneous or simulated laughter your, and your, your body can't think, your body can only feel, right? So it doesn't matter how the laughter starts, it's still sort of triggering that whole sort of, you know, physiological response. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that I don't have to rely on jokes for my income because, oh, my God, I'd be on the bread line. <laughs>
there's really interesting way that you write and, and you talked about the gelatologist. Mm. Is it a, someone that makes Italian ice cream? <laughs> you know, you use humour <laughs> within... I'm laughing at my own joke. <laughs> <laughs> you use humour within your book as well. And, and so you, you can make people laugh in, in ways that's not just laugh. But, yeah, you do write in a really inviting way that is casual in nature but there's a lot of rich history and science throughout the book as well. What's something that's that you find fascinating? You've written this book, you've published it, you've talked about it, but what's something that's still just utterly fascinating to you that you've learnt on this journey? So much. I, I, I know that might sound corny but honestly I just, I just learnt so much and I learnt so much about the human spirit and... I recount one example of a West, Western Australian woman called Kim O'Mara and she about 10 or so years ago was diagnosed with an incurable disease and rather than sort of the normal response, you know, where you sort of like to sort of dig yourself into a, a burrow and, you know, hide, she started laughing, right? And she sort of, she, you know, admits that, some people might sort of think, you know, make assumptions that, you know, the amount that she sort of laughed was inappropriate, but she she really strongly believed that there's no, there's no, nothing inappropriate about it. And she started to laugh about everything that essentially happened to her up to that moment. And that was also being abused as a child. And she was so taken by this and she got introduced to laughter yoga that Kim decided, and her nickname is Angel Kimmy, and you'll see why um, as I tell you, she decided to fulfil two of her life's missions. One was to, to hang out with the gorillas in Rwanda and the other was to take laughter to a, an area, you know, and essentially get people to sort of laugh with, with each other um, for peace essentially to enhance peace. So the first mission, really unsuccessful. Um, and unfortunately, one of the gorillas fell for her alluring charms and it was it ended up in heartbreak. Um, but the second mission, um, bringing laughter yoga to Rwanda, has been an unbelievable success story. She started to train people, initially just by herself, formally warring families, Hutu and the Tutsis, um, and she would, you know, get them to do laughter yoga together. So they weren't laughing at each other, they were laughing with one another and from the heights of laughter and all of those endorphins being released, they were able to sort of process some of their trauma. And it was so successful that the Rwandan government actually um, now have it as part of their official reconciliation program. And there's been a, a, an international rotary grant that's enabled them to train. Uh, I think as of last year, they're going to be training lots more laughter yoga facilitators in, in various villages. So that's just one example of, you know, someone who has gone through such, I mean, against all odds is, is still walking this planet and has taken, you know, this notion of laughter yoga and it really has, um, you know, led to peaceful outcomes. And her aim is to actually have, you know, every year they have a one-minute silence um, for, you know, reconciliation in, you know, the big, you know, main stadium and she actually wants to introduce, you know, laughter for, for one minute, you know, as well. It's interesting. We, um, one of our guests, it was an interesting episode. We had my former business partner and my father uh, on, on 
one of the episodes, and my father was the UN uh, humanitarian coordinator immediately following the genocide in Rwanda. Mm. And, and he spoke, I remember, he, uh, he didn't talk much about his work in many ways when I was growing up. In some ways, at a certain level, yes, but never about kind of the trauma and exposure and so on. And I don't want to trivialize anything, but I do wonder about if it's a little bit like you and, and your wife. Because despite the fact that Roz is the professional in this, I still think you're not going to get away with, uh, I hear you, it must have been a very tough day. What about putting on Seinfeld? I think you're going to, I think that will go badly. Is my instinct. You know your wife better than me and Roz is a professional. But where I am going is I just wonder as well, again, you spoke, Roz, about maybe it's not immediately about the left, but going for a walk, working out you know, what it is that decompresses being in nature or whatever. And I would imagine that at a moment in time, trying to introduce yoga laughter into Rwanda wouldn't have worked. Yeah, correct. It would have just, you know, the idea would have just been anathema, just abhorrent. It was too close to the trauma. If one supports your view, and certainly listening to you, I certainly feel that I do, that, yoga, that, that laughter is a powerful tool, then like any other powerful tool, it has to be applied kind of with respect and in the right way. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And, I mean, that goes back to, you know, no one ever wants to be laughed at. That's, you know, disrespectful. And there's just like there's different humour styles, you know, there's also different laughter styles and some are, you know, more inclusive than others. And laughter is not always the answer. You know, as I say, you know, for, for, for Matt, I actually would think, you know, gratitude, you know, not every day is good but there is good in every day and getting people to sort of just start that sort of culture around you know every day just recounting things that have gone well starts to sort of get your brain to notice these things so the more you seek the more you see so that's probably part one and then go on to Seinfeld um but uh it's it's what you were saying you know Matt before about just just getting people to talk you know getting you know realizing that you know we are all humans you know essentially we all want the same thing we want to live peacefully we want to be loved we want to you know shelter and all that sort of stuff um so you know when you start focusing on the things that we have in common and laughter for example and smiling is something that we are all born with i mean darwin it's surprising he is not better known for his studies in smiling and laughter because he used to study um not only primates but babies and he would note that um firstly that you know certain animals laugh but secondly that um, it didn't matter whether a child was born deaf or blind they still would smile and have the capacity to smile and laugh and even at end stage life say for example someone you know with a diagnosis of dementia or alzheimer's even when perhaps the context might you know have, have you know gone people still, the smart, way after language is gone, and I've seen this with both my parents, they, there is still the ability to smile and laugh. And that is something that connects every single person around the globe. And I think there's tremendous power in that. Well, you just mentioned your parents. And one of the things that Matt and I have found through a number of these interviews now is that, and we will get on to your moment of clarity in a bit, but um, <laughs> people are so influenced by their parents and often in, in ways that are not entirely recognised until we kind of ask them the question and so on. But I, obviously you mentioned in the beginning that your father was a GP 
and you've ended up essentially healing people and creating a practice of healing and so on. I'm just wondering what kind of impact has that had on your whole approach to life? I was the youngest of four, as I, as I mentioned earlier, and one of the ways in which I sort of, I suppose, sort of like cemented my place in the hierarchy was making people laugh. It's like if I, if I could make them laugh, then, you know, I was part of them. It's like it didn't matter if I didn't have the sophistication that perhaps my elder siblings, and they were a lot older, nine, you know, nine and a half, 11, you know, 12 years above and my dad you know worked really long hours and those were the days where you know doctors were really on call and I used to treasure those moments with him where you know if if he'd come down come you know home early one day you know and if we got the opportunity to watch Get Smart and just sort of recounting some of those you know lines you know that sort of running joke that I had particularly with him it's like you know um you know would you believe and also my dad was very witty and so I also being silly wasn't condoned in my household but but being clever and being witty was was lauded um lauded I don't know how you say that lauded lauded so that sort of I suppose really, um, you know, and I saw, you know, how my parents were, you know, in their social circle and there was a lot of laughter. There was a lot more laughter, you know, when they were with their friends and when they were with us kids. And I, you know, and I'd, and I'd sort of observe what was happening and it was, it was a lot of wordplay, it was a lot of wit, it was a lot of jokes in a non-conventional sense. Before we do move on to Moments of Clarity, Toby, I'll let you do the honours a bit later. But I've got another reflection about uh, a couple of areas we've touched on. So first of all, the Rwanda genocide was the idea that the West sort of sent in counsellors and psychologists to work with the people that had suffered and were victims, uh, whether directly or indirectly, in a real Western way, which was to talk about your trauma directly. Mm. And and it didn't work. They needed to Mm. be singing, dancing, being Mm. with their community. Mm. And I guess laughter is sort of within that bounds, a physical mm. uh, unified way of, of healing rather than talking about your problems. So with that, is there a place for current Western psychology that is sit down, talk about your trauma and, you know, eventually we might give you a strategy but you're really just talking through it versus the p- more positive psychology? psychology pathway which is or even maybe a more communal pathway where you get your community and people around you to try to lift you up in some way and you maybe talk about it but in a more jovial way um you're the big question man i think there's always everybody's different right so you know for some people it, it is you know very you know important to just be able to, to talk things through some people just that doesn't necessarily help shift stuff um, or help make sense of things. It's actually really interesting. You're talking about, you know, the Western people, you know, going into Rwanda, you know, with their particular styles. So so Kim took, you know, laughter yoga, as I said, into Rwanda. And laughter yoga had been developed in India. And there were some pretty sort of stock standard laughs. You know, you'd have your namaste greeting laugh, you'd have, or a handshake greeting laugh, you'd have, um, I don't know, um, you know, washing machine laugh or whatever it is. 
yet in Rwanda they would would create their own laughs. Um, so it would be sort of, you know, the, la- the laugh where they're sort of like trying to like brush out their curly hair, you know, or, you know, sweeping their hut, you know, with a, with a straw broom or, you know, washing their clothes with some rocks, you know, for example, as opposed to, you know, the Western um, washing machine um, laugh. So I think that whatever context you are in, you have to appreciate and value what works for them, and you know, if in that, and that doesn't matter whether you're in east, west, wherever. Um, and you, and you've also, as I say, got to realise that you know everybody's different, and uh, you know we all process things differently. But I think sometimes it's lovely to have a bit of a package, you know, to be able to talk about things. But then some trauma, like deep trauma, often does not get released just through talking. Um, you know, you actually need some sort of physicality, some something like dance, as you said, just to physically shift it. And a couple of other things. First of all, Seinfeld is always the best recommendation that's possible. Oh, so, um, you know, <laughs> but but uh, I'm definitely the big fan in my house. Lauren's more of a friends person, though. I'm getting into getting her into uh, Seinfeld, and I think Curb Your Enthusiasm's got a new season coming out soon. So I'm looking forward to that. But on a, on a different note, a movie that came to mind when you were talking was Inside Out. Have you seen? Is that about the emotions? The emotions yes. and how that there's brilliant. Yeah, great movie. That yes. you know, happiness is this. Yes. You know amazing character at the start yes. that all the other ones, anger, disgust, sadness, we don't need those, you know, yes. it's just about being happy but eventually the person with these emotions mm. sort of cracks and does need mm. sadness mm. And, and and these other characters. So it's, it's a true testament, would you say, to the myriad that we need in life? A hundred percent. You know, we need to, as human beings, you know, feel all emotions. We can't just bury some of the ones that are just inconvenient and we don't like because that's what creates problems. So, you know, it's about it's about the scale. So, you know, the, the reality is, is that we all have, you know, what's called an inbuilt negativity bias, okay? So we don't want to get rid of it. Okay, it's really important for our survival. Otherwise, we'd be running into busy roads or burning ourselves. Okay, the issue is is that you, common stress tends to just sort of feed into this sort of inbuilt negativity bias, and we need strategies to just to temper it. And the thing about positivity in our brain is it's like a whisper. You don't hear it. It's not. It's not important to our evolution. Um, you know, it's nice and everything. So it's a bit. If you think about it, um, a, a neuropsychologist um, Rick Hansen calls it positivity in the brain is like Teflon. It just slides right off. Whereas negativity is like Velcro. So what we need to do is we actually need to make positive experiences more sticky, so that our brain starts learning from them better. And that's what some of the, you know, techniques that I discuss in my book um, are, you know, to grow that stickiness. And on your book, I mean, we've, we've talked about it a little bit, but is there a little plug that you'd like to give? Where can people buy your book, find your book, and, and what do you want people to get from your book? I would like people to understand that the laughter effect is about far more than laughter. It's about, uh, yes, sure, it's about the science of, you know, humour and laughter, but it's also about discovering the pathway to a laughter mindset as a foundation for joy and positive well-being. If that, you know, in some sort of small way can transform someone's life and really turbocharge their joy and well-being, my job will be done. Um, in terms of where they can access it, please do. Bookshops, online, audio, libraries, 
anywhere else? I don't think so. It is widely available, which I'm very grateful about. But rather than it staying on the shelves, I would like to start it, see it leaping off them. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, Ros, you, you've identified Matt as uh, the big question yeah. guy. And when I grow up, I want to be the big question guy. Right now I'm just the slightly bad jokes guy. Are you waiting for me to interject? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, even the website says that Matt does it for all heapy reasons and I do the podcast so I can tell bad jokes. So, uh, so that's real. But on the subject of growing up, whether not just as a child but as an adult, we kind of grow up multiple times, right, at different points mm. in our lives and often that is around an event or a realising what on this podcast we refer to as a moment of clarity. You've covered several in a sense, but if you had to say identify in the course of your life that has led you to where you are, how would you talk about your moment of clarity? It's, it's funny. Well, it's not really funny, but I did have a moment of epiphany, which wasn't necessarily a moment of clarity, but it really did transform my life. So I was um, in the academic world. I was teaching in health promotion and public health and super important, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't feeding my heart. And um, having had, you know, bowel cancer as well um, and then I had um, like a 12-month following the bowel cancer operation, I had a, a scheduled, you know, CT scan and appointment with the specialist and when I went to see the specialist, he said, you know, everything's looking fine other than, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a little spot on your liver. I think we should get that checked out and it's like, what? liver spot like oh my gosh and I started to literally spiral and so all of that strength and resilience you know I'd sort of been embodying for the past year it's like I started to unravel sort of thinking about oh my gosh I don't know if I could deal with another cancer like within 12 months that's that's too much and I started to get anxiety which is not something that I had experienced before and so my GP decided that um, it was time to, you know, get, get me checked out. So for me to wear a 24-hour heart monitor halter. So I had that fitted and that was during my Laugh Out Loud um, aged care project and the, the, the beginning of the, the one, day one, I had to wear it for two days. So day one I was in the aged care and I turned up to aged care and honestly I think I felt older than all of them and like they were like in their 80s and 90s and I was like, you know, in my late 40s or early 40s and I actually made sure that, you know, my I wore a shirt which I could sort of button up to the top so no one could see the um the cords anyway then the next day I went back to the GP got the heart monitor taken off the halter and I had a booking to run a laughter yoga session for year 10s in a private school anyway I turn up and um you know in the assembly hall and they it's like a big group of people and I said you know is there going to be sound you know it's like I I don't want to you know I can't project over all of these you know 50 something girls so they got the sound technician and they essentially wired me up the lapel mic you know so they got the the um wire and they fed it under my you know I fed it under my top and you know for the microphone and it was like this it's like the world everything just went really slow and it's like this is this is your moment Roz you need to decide either stay with academia and do what you're going to you know continue doing and keep pushing yourself and doing you know what does not feed your heart and that's what will be your destiny 
or choose laughter and the rest is history. Is that a moment of clarity? That absolutely is. That's a wonderful moment of clarity. Thank you so much, Ros. It's been a delight to have you on. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, I just wanted to echo that. Thank you so much. It was absolutely amazing. Oh, my absolute pleasure and and thank you and good on you for what you do. Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, The biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website moc-pod.com or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.